The glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. How is your Lent going? Today is the fifth Sunday of Lent, which is hard to believe. Feels like Ash Wednesday was just yesterday. Time flies when you're having no fun at all. I'm kidding, of course, because many people say that they find Lent to be the most refreshing and life-giving season of the church year. It's time for a kind of spiritual spring cleaning, reevaluating practices and priorities, taking on disciplines and giving up vices. So if you're having a successful Lent, sticking with it, doing the things you said you would, not doing the things you said you would not, good for you. And if your Lent feels like a failure, a journey through a desert that ended after just a few steps with a mouthful of sand, well done to you too. Because Lent is not a time when we measure ourselves by standards of success or failure, as we do in every other aspect of our lives. The point of trying to keep a holy Lent is not to succeed, but to be faithful, and sometimes to fail. We want to be holy people. We hope to be able to curb our appetites and our cravings. But apart from God's grace, we just cannot. Lent reminds us that if we're trying to lean on our own strength and our own status or wisdom, we are never going to make it. There are two weeks left in Lent. So wherever you are in this season of fasting and self-denial, I want to encourage you to press forward, to lean on Christ and not just yourself, and to finish the journey well, even if there have been some long pauses and detours along the way. Paul knows a thing or two about leaning on your own strength and just how little help can be found in trusting yourself. If you have your Bible handy this morning... Turn with me again to Philippians chapter 3. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians that we read from this morning from a prison cell. And he wrote to encourage the church in Philippi to thank them for sending him a gift of money, to urge them to match their behavior to the example of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in whom they had come to know and trust, and who Paul had put all of his trust in for this life and for the next. And Paul has come a long way in his own life to get to this point. As he writes, he's trying to convey the relationship with Jesus that he has, the thing that has changed his whole life. But first he has to deal with some misconceptions. So he lays it out very plainly, starting in chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, who of course was once named Saul, is not just any Jewish convert to Christianity. He is a Hebrew among the Hebrews, born into the tribe of Benjamin, that makes him an ancestor of Israel's first king, Saul, for whom he was named. 
He was a Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of the church. And by every possible human standard found in the law of the Jewish scriptures, he was blameless. So Paul is throwing down a gauntlet here, challenging anyone who wants to place their confidence in their self-righteousness, their status and qualifications, to bring their resume and see just how it stacks up with his. Paul was born and raised a Jewish son of the covenant, schooled by the Pharisees, trained to defend the Torah and the law and to teach others to do the same. His zeal for God's righteousness was legendary. His enthusiasm for keeping the traditions and protecting the heritage of his people is unmatched. It was this zeal, this reputation, that made the other apostles and followers of Jesus skeptical of Paul after his conversion. As a Pharisee, he had been a pursuer of Christians, the tip of the spear in the efforts to stamp out the early church. And as a Pharisee, he has quite a history to lean on. The Pharisees traced their own heritage, or at least their inspiration, back to the ancient days when Israel was finishing the exodus out of Egypt, almost in sight of the promised land. And as you can imagine, with the people of God, they just got tired of doing what God had said. So in Numbers 25, it's recorded that the Israelites have decided to start to yoke themselves to the local tribes, to the Moabites, and to their false gods. Idolatry and immorality were becoming more commonplace. Those two usually go hand in hand. And so a plague broke out among the people, a divine retribution of sorts for their faithlessness. They were growing so bold that they were starting to flaunt their sin in the Israelite camp, ignoring God's clear instructions so that finally somebody had to do something. And that somebody was Phineas, the grandson of Aaron the priest. And what Phineas did was take up a spear and kill two such unfaithful idolaters in front of the whole nation of Israel. And the plague ended. And Phineas, by his action, made it clear that God's people could not just mock God's commands. This is the defining moment for Israelite zeal from that moment forward. Because of his intervention, Phineas received a perpetual covenant. His family would be priests forever. And his actions would inspire Israelites from then on. When Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal, or when the Maccabees fought back against the Syrian Empire, they were calling on the same zeal that Phineas showed for God's righteousness. Zeal was the outward sign of an inward, unbreakable relationship between God and God's faithful people, no matter how few of them there might ever be. So growing up as a faithful Jewish boy from Benjamin's tribe in Tarsus, surrounded by pagan Gentiles, we can be certain Paul knows all of these stories. When he persecuted the first Christians, Paul was acting out of zeal. His convictions that by his actions, he could be righteous in the sight of God. That to be a faithful son of the covenant, this is what he had to do. That the movement of Jesus' followers had to be extinguished as soon as possible. So imagine the kind of incredible transformation Paul had to undergo to believe that all that heritage, all that history, 
all that status and preparation was worthless, that his zeal had been misplaced. This is what he writes further in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a complete change of heart because of meeting Jesus and because of coming to know who Christ was for him. His faith was not rooted in belief or theory, but on personal knowledge. His training and his heritage were first class. They were the best, but they meant nothing without the awareness of the person and presence of Jesus himself. Paul's meeting with Christ on the Damascus Road has become kind of a shorthand. You can describe any kind of personal change as a Damascus Road moment, but that sort of takes something away of the dramatic nature of that encounter. Paul's meeting with Jesus was a kind of divine audit. It flips everything in his books upside down. The great Swiss preacher Karl Barth said it like this. For Paul, his conversion does not mean that he sees his former life as nothing or as neutral in some kind of cosmic ledger, but as a negative, as a former life that he should regret. For Paul, the heights on which he stood are now abysmal. The assurance he had is lost. The light he had has become darkness. But now God has absolved Paul's guilt. It's made him into a new man. And Paul is able to move into the future with joy. He doesn't shrink back from what's coming. He's excited. And he's continually reminded that his past has been dealt with. And his future is assured by God's grace because he knows Jesus Christ. Paul learned that knowing Jesus finds expression not just in joyful anticipation, but also in suffering. Knowing Jesus intimately requires difficulty, hardship, the partnership that is shared when you go through something together and come out on the other side. Jesus, the Messiah, saw his equality with God not as something to exploit, but instead committed himself to service and to a shameful, humiliating death. So Paul knows that his own status will have to similarly be crucified. It's not worth holding on to or exalting. His old identity, his credibility, his accolades, his status, his blameless and righteous life, all these things are rubbish. And the new thing, the thing that leads him into the future with hope, is Jesus. Meeting Christ is the thing that makes all the difference for him and for us. Meeting Christ is what makes us who we're meant to be, not keeping the law or having a long family religious history or any other external marker at all. It must be Christ or nothing. Knowing Jesus and his suffering and his resurrection is better than anything else. It is the cure for the common life. And to know him in this way, we have to be willing to give up everything else. 
Every attempt to gain favor and advantage with God on the basis of our achievements or our gifting or all the trophies that we might be able to stack up in argument for our own righteousness. Coming to faith is not a transition from vice to virtue. It's the recognition that all our worldly virtue is worthless when compared with knowing Jesus. We're not decent people who just need to add a touch of Christ's righteousness to our already decent lives in order to be saved. Our decency, when compared with Jesus, is trash that has to be thrown out. So what used to matter has to be abandoned, not just reconceived, but tossed out, if it keeps us from knowing Christ in the depths of his love. And Paul finds the strongest language he can to make this point. I had a friend when I was in seminary who was a bit of a biblical languages savant, even among that special collection of nerds that we had. (laughs) And this passage is one that he loved dearly because he came from a small church in rural North Carolina, and he liked to go home and mess with people. And he loved to see them squirm when he would say to them, if I told you that there was a real live curse word in the Bible, would you let me say it in church? Now, what we translate as rubbish in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, is not quite as strong as Tyler hoped it would be, but it's real close. Paul has every marker that anybody in his whole world could have hoped for, and yet he regards all of them as rubbish, dung in the King James, when compared with knowing Jesus Christ. Everything that came before his meeting with Jesus was not just a little bit misguided, not just a little bit off course, but as life that was headed for death. If you want to keep score by the old rules, Paul wins every time. But those old rules are out the window and useless now. Paul has been zealous and committed and at the top of the heap when it comes to status and achievements. And he is eager to give all of that up in order to know Christ in his resurrection, but also in his sufferings. Paul presses on towards the goal because the goal is better than everything else. He wants to be with Jesus because being with Jesus is better than anything he could have acquired on his own. All of those things, all of those achievements and status and heritage has to be crucified. It has to be conformed to Christ's suffering on the cross and his resurrection. And if that is how Paul sees all of his sterling A-plus qualifications, how much more should it be true for us. All of the external markers of the faithful Christian life, the right music, the right vestments, the right liturgy, the right denomination, the building, the coffee, the pleasant fellowship, even the bishop's chair, God forbid, all of those things are rubbish if we don't know Jesus. All of them are not gain but loss, not positive but negative, not life but death apart from knowing the Lord in his resurrection and in his cross. But if we know Christ, we will feel a pull in our hearts, a tug on our spirits to press on toward the goal with confidence, not in ourselves, not in what we are able to do with our own two hands or with our minds, but in our Lord. The Christian life, particularly in Lent, 
has to be shaped in this way by a personal encounter with the one whose own life included both the resurrection and the cross, both joy and sorrow. Conformity to that pattern, trusting wholly in our Lord Jesus, is what gives us what we need to press on for the finish line, to run the race well and to win the prize, which is Christ himself. This Lent, if we are willing to follow where we are being led by the scriptures and by the rhythm of the church calendar, we are being drawn closer and closer to the resurrection and to the suffering of Jesus. We are getting to the heart of the matter now, the all-surpassing truth at the center of the universe, what the church has called the paschal mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection. In this season, we have to forget what lies behind, the rubbish of our past lives, our past deeds, our past status and qualifications, and press on toward the future that lies ahead where Christ is, leading us toward a destiny that we cannot dictate nor control. We have to give ourselves completely to him and go where he is leading. And if we do that, like Paul, we will be found worthy because God sees not our status or our heritage or our zeal or our achievements, but only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, we can be made worthy if and only if we are found in him. Amen.